Is the White House getting a cybersecurity advisor and linking a suspected hacker to Russian intelligence? These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's security report with a look at the veteran National Security Agency cyber operative who may be President Donald Trump's new cybersecurity advisor. He's Rob Joyce, and a number of published reports say he's in line to become the White House cybersecurity coordinator or a similarly titled position. Who's Joyce? He's nearly a 28-year veteran of the Defense Department, which runs the NSA. Since 2013, he's been chief of the NSA's Tailored Access Operations. The Tailored Access Operations provides tools and expertise in computer network exploitation to call foreign intelligence. Like a lot of employees at the spy agency, Joyce keeps a low profile. Here's Joyce speaking at the Usenik's Enigma Security Conference in San Francisco last year. I'm from Tailored Access Operations, and I will admit it is very strange, right, to be in that position up here on a stage in front of a group of people. It's not something often done. Joyce's philosophy and that of the NSA unit is to know your adversary better than it knows itself. And how does Joyce see the difference between Tailored Access Operations experts and the experts at the foreign sites they hack? We put the time in to know that network. We put the time in to know it better than the people who designed it and the people who are securing it. You know the technologies you intended to use in that network. We know the technologies that are actually in use in that network. Subtle difference. Did you catch that? You know what you intended to use. We know what's actually in use inside there. Joyce says tailored access operations experts even have a better understanding of the functionality and security of specific devices in a network than do the device developers. So they won't know the whole product. They won't know every feature that those developers had, but they'll understand the security technologies and they'll bring that expertise at a very, very deep level. If Joyce joins the White House team, he'll bring to the position a more offensive approach to cyber than his predecessors. And that could suggest that the Trump White House might develop policies to take a more aggressive approach to our adversaries in cyberspace than did earlier administrations. There seems to be close ties between alleged hacker Eugenie Bokachev and the Russian intelligence service. Could Bokachev have collaborated with Russia to influence the U.S. presidential election? Joining me to discuss possible ties between Bokachev and Russian intelligence is Data Breach Today editor Matthew Schwartz. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Eric. What do we know about Bogachev? We know precious little about Bogachev, the individual. What we do know has been gleaned mostly in part from the indictments against him by the U.S. Department of Justice, as well as some anecdotal evidence. In terms of the anecdotal evidence, there's a new report in the New York Times that includes an interview with Alexander Panin, who's a Russian national. He's currently serving time in federal prison in Kentucky after pleading guilty to developing spy-eye banking malware. And Panin says that as far as he knows, Bogachev, who he's never met before, he only communicated with him online, probably mentioned having a wife and a couple of kids at some point. The other things we know are from the FBI Most Wanted poster. They're offering $3 million for information leading to his arrest and capture. They say he's a boating aficionado, he likes luxury cars, and he prefers to drive a Jeep Cherokee. We're talking pretty low-level detail when it comes to the life and times of a man who's alleged to have been behind a $100 million cybercrime ring. What charges have been brought against Bogachev? 
Bogachev's been indicted not once, but twice in relation to Game Over Zeus. Now, Game Over Zeus was a banking trojan. It was designed to steal people's online access credentials and other information to allow attackers to drain their online bank accounts. The feds got wind of this in 2009 and began investigating, eventually traced $100 million in losses or more and 30 terabytes of data that had gone missing. They initially found Bogachev via a nickname, Lucky12345, and in August 2012 filed an indictment. In May 2014, they filed an updated indictment that named Bogachev by name. So they figured out who he allegedly was and have charged him with money laundering, bank fraud, wire fraud, and some other things. What's the link between Bogachev and Russian intelligence? Now, there's no indication that Bogachev is tied to Russian intelligence. There's a new report in the New York Times which offers anecdotal evidence, but it includes comments by a former FBI investigator who said that they found no smoking gun. There's nothing that has clearly tied him to Russian intelligence. However, I've long heard from security researchers based in Russia and outside that if you're a Russian cyber criminal, there's two rules. One, you never attack organizations or institutions, especially banks, inside Russia. The second rule, you always help Russian authorities should they come calling. Do those two things and you'll stay out of jail. Russia doesn't extradite its citizens, so that's not really a concern. But you apparently need to stay on the right side of Russian authorities. And one way to do that, if you're a hacker, is to help them out. There are some other details which offer further potential clues. Again, with the New York Times story, they were noting how little intelligence officials these days in Russia get paid. Unlike in Soviet times, they're probably having a difficult time bringing sufficient resources to bear on their espionage operations. It's important to remember that the last time the figures were tallied, Russia's economy economy was at about the same level as Texas. They're looking for potentially innovative ways to gather intelligence on targets, and it would make sense that they would attempt to use large global botnets being used by cyber criminals to earn money to sneak in some intelligence gathering operations. When the Obama administration announced sanctions against Russia for using cyber to influence the U.S. elections, it specifically cited Bogachev. Why so? It's not clear why they did, and a lot of security experts reacted with some questions about that. There's nothing in the sanctions that they announced that ties Bogachev to the attempted disruption of the U.S. election. When the sanctions were announced, Obama delivered a statement saying that two individuals, one of whom was Bogachev, were being sanctioned at the request of the Secretary of the Treasury for using cyber-enabled means to cause misappropriation of funds and personally identifying information. This may have just been a grab bag of people that the administration was accusing the Russian government of supporting. Whether the individuals were working on behalf of the Russian government or potentially just being allowed to hack is unclear. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. One more thing on this story. Russian cyber criminals don't just work for the Russian government. Some of those nabbed by American law enforcement agree to help the U.S. defend its cyber assets as part of a plea deal. Arkady Buk is a Russian-born American lawyer who represents Russian hackers before U.S. courts. In an interview with the New York Times podcast, The Daily, Buk explains that Russian hackers who cooperate with American authorities get lighter sentences. It's a practice U.S. prosecutors adapted from the deals they struck with other kinds of criminals. We had that practice from drug dealers, gangsters uh, here in New York. The Russian government actually learned that within the last maybe 10, 15 years that this is a great practice. And they basically taking American approach. The Russians just learned about that at later stage. Interesting. Russia learned how to flip Russian cyber criminals who might be behind the hack of the U.S. government from the Americans. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. 
ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The think tank Rand Corporation has studied a set of 200 zero-day vulnerabilities discovered from 2002 through 2016. What did Rand researchers learn? ISMG security and technology editor Jeremy Kirk provides that answer. The average zero-day vulnerability works for nearly seven years before losing effectiveness. That's just one of many surprising findings contained in a groundbreaking new study from the nonprofit research institute RAND. The study has been welcomed by computer security analysts due to the previous paucity of data relating to zero days, which are flaws that have not been patched by a software vendor. The study is also timely as it arrives on the heels of WikiLeaks' release of purported network exploitation techniques used by the CIA. That data dump has revived an ethical debate over how the U.S. government manages software vulnerabilities. The motivation for RAND's zero-day study was to better frame the risks associated with that debate. It centers around whether the government should promptly disclose software flaws to vendors or hold on to the information for intelligence-gathering reasons. Either decision relies in part on making murky public safety judgment calls. Lillian Ablon, an information scientist with RAND who co-authored the study, tells me that the goal of it was to help in making those tough decisions. On average, RAND found that a zero-day vulnerability has an extremely long average lifespan of 6.9 years. It also found that only 5.7% of any given stockpile of vulnerabilities will be found by someone else after a year. It's a statistic referred to as the collision rate. A quarter of exploits, however, will not be viable for longer than 18 months, while another quarter will survive for more than 9.5 years. What are the RAND study's implications for software developers and vendors? Simply put, Ablon says they're going to have to take the hard road and get smarter about every aspect of their information security. Simply trying to spot flaws in your own code before bug hunters come calling isn't a good strategy. Instead, organizations must assume they're compromised and investigate ways to improve the overall architecture of their systems. Ablon says that companies don't want to hear that advice since it's costly to build in security from the start. But that's the zero-day vulnerability world in which we now live. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.